Our scripture today is from the book of Mark. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, there have been no shortage of stories about leadership failures in the church over the last several years. Uh, the thing is, it's not a new thing. Uh, wherever power is involved, there is a lineage of entitlement and spiritual abuse and cover-up. There are always people waiting in the wings to kind of enable, to fix, to look the other way. I know the stories of far too many who have been hurt by spiritual leaders, whether that's because they were taken in by uh, people who were one way in public and then they peeked behind the curtain to see a totally different life in private. Or if it's not a close-up experience, we've all kind of seen the rise and fall of yet another celebrity preacher. It's quickly becoming an American pastime. At the heart of most of these stories is a particular view of leadership about delivering a certain kind of result where manipulation and domineering get a pass because of a vision of success. And it's not a problem just in the megachurches. It's not just a problem about moral failures. All of it's taking place in the background against this fog of faith and doubt, which the philosopher Charles Taylor called disenchantment. We live in this time of widespread decline in religiosity. Millions of millennials are every year walking away from the church. Millions of Gen Zers were never there in the first place. And, and please note, this is a Western phenomena to be sure. It's not a global one. The Church of Jesus is actually doing quite well in the world. It's exploding in other parts of the world, particularly among young people and women. 
But the way that Taylor sees it is that the, the cultural waters that we are swimming in here in the West have shifted the moral and spiritual landscape so that we are constantly moving against the riptide of skepticism. In her book, Celebrities for Jesus, what a great title, the journalist Kaylin Bailey points out that the cultural atmosphere of doubt is what makes charismatic leaders so seductive in our particular moment, especially when they rise to this kind of celebrity status. It's because we long for God to break through the fog. We, we see that when, when leaders are doing well through the sheer force of their personality, when they are challenging us or, or entertaining us or inspiring us, whether it's, it's on the stage or off just through the, the sheer force of their personality. We, we get swept up in these feelings of transcendence. Sometimes that feeling can feel like an encounter with the holy. And then when the metrics of the organization get skewed by external markers that are bound up with the gifts and the vision of a singular leader, it's much easier to overlook or even to excuse a lack of character. Mike Cosper, who documented the rise and fall of Mars Hill, wrote this recently. We keep bad leaders around because in response to our default setting of doubt, we've created conditions in which character isn't a qualification for the job. We want someone who can make us feel something. And this is by no means something that's limited to the church. Uh, most of us have come of age in a time of widespread leadership meltdowns, whether that's in the political sphere or the corporate sphere or the church sphere. It's one scandal after another. People who use the organization that they, they lead to build a platform for themselves with them at the center. And along with it comes a bloated salary, some kind of gravy train vacation perk, an opportunity to foster possibly some illegal business ventures. And, or, and now I speak in hushed tones, the most highly prized commodity in corporate life, an office with windows or a nice parking space. Now, whether that's in any of the spheres, be it corporate, political, religious, the leaders we reward tend to be the ones who can deliver a feeling. Jesus is well aware of this problem. His close friends, James and John, have more than half an eye toward the perks and the public acclaim that they might get from being around him. They've already claimed their cabinet positions. They've already marked out their tenured offices. And Jesus tells them, guys, you have lost the plot. Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. Jarring language. But Jesus wants to see that there is a posture of discipleship that runs counter to anything that the world has to offer. Now you notice the disciples, they want to be great, which in and of itself, it's a, it's a good desire. But this desire is going to need to be given a new focus if it's going to step in line with the kingdom. Jesus is out here walking with the 12 on the road up to Jerusalem where he tells them in graphic detail that he is going to be handed over. He tells them that the outcome of his leadership, of his authority, is not going to lead to the upward mobility of celebrity and a throne. It's going to lead to the downward mobility of rejection and the cross. The God who created the world, falsely accused, beaten, pierced to take away the sins of the world he created, we worship a God who knows what it is to suffer, 
whose way of leadership does not use power to build up a brand or to draw more and more influence for himself but, or soak the fires of personal ambition, but instead who lays itself down for the sake of the world. The cross leads to a life of humility and service. So what does that do with our obsession with leadership? How can you be a ruler and a servant at the same time? That is the question that Jesus circles back to with his disciples. And again, he stresses that the value is not so much in being regarded or esteemed as great as it is having the kind of character in which greatness is reflected. Before we get into the text, I was reminded this week of a little something that Jesus' little brother, James, wrote Uh, Some years later, some practical wisdom for those who want to follow in the way of service and humility as opposed to the way of power and ambition. He penned this. Who is wise in understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom... I think that's the original use of scare quotes there. Does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Wherever there is corrosion or corruption at the root of any community, there you will find two things, envy and selfish ambition. Envy is when you covet somebody else's life, be it their gifts, their position, be it, it's when you look at somebody else's story and you say, I want that. I, I want their charisma. I want their, their, the way that they're put together. I want the kind of relationship that they have with their, their spouse, with their, with their parents, with their children, whatever. And it's a vicious cycle because there will always be somebody who's up ahead of you. When I was starting out in ministry, somebody told me that every church that I go to as a pastor, someone is going to be smarter, somebody's going to pray more eloquently, somebody's going to know their Bible better, somebody's just going to look more like Jesus than you. I think this was at my ordination service. And I was like, are you trying to make me feel better about this? Like, what's going on here? But I have to say, it has been true every single time, and it's not even close. But then the person who told me that said this, and this was important. Just remember, it's not a competition. You are there to serve, not to win. And I gotta tell you, that last bit has been clutch. And it doesn't mean, you know, you, you, you lay everything down that, you know, all the things that you think, the ways that God has wired you, that you just cast that aside and let people walk over you. But what it does mean is that you don't need to be threatened by other people who have their gifts and who are wise. And at first, in my mid-20s, I was threatened. I was intimidated. I was preoccupied with proving myself. I was like, hey, I deserve to be here. I have a degree called a master of divinity, people. Over the years, I've learned to love the variety of other people's gifts. One of my favorite things about the job that I get to do is to celebrate other people's success. And if your life is arranged around a gospel of achievement, there's always going to be somebody better. You made the team, your varsity team, your sophomore year. Somebody made it as a freshman. 
You made partner at age 30. Somebody made it at 33. You bought a house in a, in a nice neighborhood. Somebody else bought a bigger and better house that looks like it was designed by Chip and Joanna, right? <laughs> this is always the way it is. You're always going to be in the shadow of someone. Envy always looks up and above at the person who makes more money, at the person who, who has a higher position than you do, or at the person who is more known in the field that you are working in than you are, whatever it is. Envy never looks behind and below. You will always be somewhere in the pecking order. And then there is selfish ambition, which leads to all kinds of relational discord. And note the qualifier, it's ambition in and of itself is not a bad thing, that's not the problem. Ambition actually is a great motivator. It's why we get up in the morning. It's, it's catalyst is to propel us out of bed and into the world so that we can take the world somewhere. But where it gets disordered is if that somewhere has you at the center of it. So that your ambition starts to get calibrated by what's best for you when you're tempted away from doing the right thing to doing the thing that's just right for you. Think about it this way. I, I was reading a book last night and this, this really hit me. If your ambition is outpacing your character, um, this is one way to know. And the book was saying something like this. If, if the goal that you were after uh, and you wanted more than anything else were to be accomplished, and so that the thing that you wanted more than anything else, the thing that you've been working for, it had happened. But you didn't get any of the credit for it. Could you still be happy? And I was just like, dang. <laughs> that is a good question. So wherever those things are present, envy, selfish ambition, they give way to all kinds of disarray. Think about when you experience deep conflict, wherever that is, whether it's at work, whether that's in your home, whether that's with your friends, your marriage, your family life, whatever it is. However it comes about, envy and selfish ambition are always crouching at the door. I don't think it's any accident that Mark places this section with James and John right after the section on marriage and wealth and discipleship. At root, where do envy and selfish ambition play themselves out? And Jesus is telling his disciples that justification by achievement is not going to work out for you. Meanwhile, James and John have their whole career trajectory mapped out in front of them. They have heard Jesus talk about the cross and they, they think what they hear him saying is, look, it's gonna be rough. It's gonna be a hard go of it for a while, but eventually we're gonna be the ones who come out on top. And when they do, they wanna make sure that they have worked all of the angles. And so they go up to him and say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. I mean, what a great way to start a conversation. <laughs> I was thinking about that. Like, if my kids were to ask me that question, I, my instinct would not be, sure, what could go wrong? Like, but notice Jesus does not rebuke them. He doesn't call them out. He doesn't say, hey, let's run this back. Start this over again. He doesn't lose his cool. He simply asks the question, what do you want? Let us sit at the right and the left hand in your glory, which is a way of saying, we want you to serve us. We want your glory for ourselves. What they don't know, what they can't know, is that Jesus' glory is manifest in the cross. And it's there on the cross where as the story goes, there will be somebody at his right and at his left also pierced for their transgressions. 
whereas Jesus is pierced for all of theirs. So he tells them, boys, you don't know what you're asking for. And this isn't a rebuke. It's just a statement of fact. So he goes on to talk to them somewhat cryptically about baptism and the cup. And in Hebrew, the cup is almost always a metaphor for the judgment of God against evil. Baptism is referring to this kind of overwhelming, immersive experience. And Jesus is saying, I am totally and utterly going to immerse myself in God's justice, in God's judgment, so you can be free. That's what I'm talking about. Is that what you want? But they don't get it, and so he continues. You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left hand is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. For the disciples, this is yet another lesson about self-sacrificing love. James and John, they miss the point, but the disciples do not fare much better. They are ready to tear into James and John for cutting them out of the picture. They want their share of glory as well. But instead of the reader kind of saying, well, how can these guys keep missing the point? I mean, Jesus has said this over and over. The intentional repetition is marked way of turning toward the reader and asking the question, how are you missing the point? One of the constant themes throughout this gospel is that being around Jesus is not the same thing as having faith in Jesus. When we look at James and John and we see how even those closest to him had a hard time grasping the meaning of the cross, we should see how hard it is for any of us. And if you see that, you might be on the road to humility. The cross, it cuts across every natural instinct, all of our normal assumptions, all of our desire for comfort and security, our pride, our self-interest. All of these things keep us in the dark, blind to what God is doing in the world, blind to what God is doing in us. And when Jesus sees that the disciples are not tracking, he gathers them together as a teacher and he says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, their high officials exercise authority over them. He's talking about how most people in the world view power, how they wield influence to get their way. It's domination, it's control, it's top down. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And on the one level, we get this. Like we, we, we understand that the kind of leadership that Jesus calls for is not about service, it's about power. We, we get this on an intellectual level. But if we're honest, how often do we tell ourselves, yeah, but that's just not really how the world works. There's this great book called To Change the World uh, by the sociologist James Davison Hunter. And he makes the argument that the framework of modern politics with all of its power plays and dominant flexing has so shaped our imaginations that we simply cannot imagine a different kind of world. He writes, the state has increasingly become the incarnation of the public wheel. Its laws, policies, and procedures have become the predominant framework by which we understand collective life, its members, its leading organizations, its problems, and its issues. This is the heart of politicization. 
And it has gone so far as to affect our language, our imagination, our expectations. The language of politics comes to frame progressively more of our understanding of our common life, our public purposes, of ourselves, individually and collectively. When Jesus says, not so with you, we are just like the disciples who cannot imagine a world any different than the one we are actually living in. And the simple proof of this is this, with all of the attention that is given to power and abuses of power within our culture over the last couple hundred years, whether it's you know, a Marxist vision of a classless society or Foucault and postmodern power analysis, whether it's critical theory and the democratization of social media, this idea of speaking truth to power, for all of the critique, for all of the abuses, much of which is right and good, do we still willingly reward those who use power to dominate and to draw attention to themselves? Do we still give platforms to people who are seeking to wield power in this way? Or do we give power to those who will willingly lay it down for the common good? Jesus is telling his disciples, look, I'm not interested in reshuffling the deck so that you can have a stronger hand. I'm here to throw out the game altogether. N.T. Wright puts it this way. The cross is God's way of putting the world and ourselves to rights. It challenges and subverts all human systems which claim to put the world to rights, but in fact only succeed in putting a different set of humans out on top. This is what James and John want when they say, give to us the power to sit at your right and your left hand. Give us the influence. Give us, put us on top so that we can be the ones in control of our enemies. But what is Jesus offering as an alternative? Is he saying that those who follow him should be, you know, just roll over, be doormats? Uh, should you just be crushed by the ones who do use power and domination this way? Is he saying you should just withdraw and disengage from culture altogether? No, he's saying love, humility, integrity, these are a very different way of wielding and stewarding power. This is not something new to God's people. In the book of Jeremiah, the nation of Israel was overrun by Babylon and carried away into captivity. And the people there were taken by force. They were made to live as exiles in a strange land. And what was to be their posture there in this host culture to which they were strangers? Well, it would be easy to pull away, to, to take the sectarian temptation, to keep to themselves, to have nothing to do with the neighbors, to stand by idly while their houses burn and leave them alone. Or they could have taken the route of the insurgents. They could have built a, a groundswell of opposition, taken up arms, used guerrilla warfare, become freedom fighters. But instead, the word of the Lord that was voiced through the prophet Jeremiah said this, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. This is God's direction. Seek the peace of the city. Seek the prosperity of the city in which your enemies live. I want you to have it become a great city to live in. I want you to serve your neighbors, even if the language, even if the culture, even if the ethnic background, even if the beliefs that they hold are different from yours. And this is not out of duty. This is not out of obligation. Another way to say pray for the city is to say love the city. Because if you pray without love, what good is it? Love 
the city. Pray for it. Seek to make it a prosperous, a peaceful city, the greatest place to live. If it prospers, you too will prosper. If it prospers through your love, you will reap the reward. This is a way of holding power that is not about pulling the levers of influence. It's not about taking power from somebody else. That doesn't really change the world. I am calling you to something different, Jesus says. Be so sacrificially loving that the people around you who don't believe what you believe will not be able to imagine this place without you. They'll trust you because they see that you're not in it for yourself, you're in it for them. You are respected because of how well you love and when that happens, how well you, how well you serve, that is how you have influence and it will be an influence that is given to you, not one that is taken from somebody else. Friends, that's who Jesus is. That is the way of Jesus. How does he respond to his enemies? He prays for them. He forgives them. He dies for them. He came to serve, not to be served. If at the very heart of reality, you come to see love best expressed in a God who emptied himself of power to die for his enemies, that's gonna change how you see the world. And then it's gonna change you. And then it's gonna change the world. 